All right, first, uh, let me just uh, remind you about the Sunday morning refreshment sheet. We have one space open, so if you want to serve in that way, we appreciate that. I'm just going to pass this around. And uh, May 17th, if you're available to, to help by bringing refreshments, we would appreciate it. All right, let's begin with the word of prayer, and and then we'll get into the material this morning. Lord, thank you for um, the power and the authority that Jesus Christ has, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he has um, transferred, uh, deferred some of that authority to us so that we can reach people for for his sake, so that we can make disciples, that we can uh, baptize them and teach them, and we depend upon Him for our authority. We find our authority uh, sourced in Him. We have no authority in ourselves, and so we praise You for that. And we praise You that He will be uh, the final judge of all the living and the dead, and and that He will uh, bring about the final um, ruling on, on those who oppose Him. And Lord, we're thankful that, that um, the truth of this song is um, near to us, that every knee will bow to Him, and some in submission and others out of obligation. And we thank You that You have bought us out of sin and the desire to turn away from You, and You've brought us into the kingdom of Your beloved Son. We pray for Your help as we look at your uh, at this material this morning, as we think about how we can know that the Bible is true. And we pray that you would uh, help us to understand it according to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're on class number six of 13 on apologetics, defending the faith, um, which the idea of that comes from Second Peter 3.15, that we should always be ready to make a defense for the hope that we have within us. And so we've been talking about many uh, various philosophical uh, issues when it comes to the existence of God and um, and uh, and how we know what we know, the the reality of knowledge. How do we come to know anything? And uh, I I've argued that uh, we can't come to know truth as God has revealed it based on evidence alone. Uh, otherwise, we exalt man's reasoning over God's word. What we need is we need God to speak to us. And so our primary responsibility as a defender of the faith is to uh, protect what God has said is true and recognize that all of our opponents, um, in the sense that uh, they, don't, they don't currently accept Christ, uh, our opponents already know that God is true. And so we can start on that basic uh, foundation that we have a common ground with unbelievers. Everyone knows that God is exists and that um, He is the Creator. And although they may deny it, the Bible tells us that they know it. So we can start on that ground. We don't have to come to some kind of a proof in order to to, uh, to teach them and, or to move in them in that direction. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when it comes to how we can use the Bible as our source of revelation when we talk to unbelievers. So... Um, there are all sorts of proofs that Christians give for why the Bible is true. 
And that's kind of what we want to look at today, not not the proofs necessarily, but why we know that the Bible is true. And um, so let me just ask you a few questions, or, or, or one question, and you give me a few answers. Why do you think the Bible is true? Why do you know that the Bible is true? Okay. I know it because it's living. Okay, good. Hebrews 4.12, right? The Word of God is living and powerful. Bill's recognized, which I think we can all agree, that it's it's had an effect on us, hasn't it? it? It's actually changed us. We know what we were like before. We know what we would have been like without it. Um, but the Word has changed us because it's pierced through the div- dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Good. Any other reason you might come to mind why you know that the Bible is true? If some unbeliever comes up to you and says, I mean, how can you how can you accept that? What would you say, Greg? Oh, I was just thinking about something else that the Bible practically has come, come to life for me at times in my life. Okay. So we have seen God's promises come to pass, right? We we've we've experienced his mercy as he's promised it to be. Um, anything else, Paul? In a world evidentiary, it's the most, it has, it's the, it's the most, it's the, it's the really book of the most manuscript available ever. Yeah. It's, that's how you judge the validity of a written piece is how many manuscripts support that. Right. The Bible is thousands. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. The Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are the that that are with our spirit, small s, that we are the sons of God. So, yeah, there's illumination process. Okay, the prophecies about Christ have all been fulfilled, at least all the ones uh, they're supposed to be fulfilled at this time. There's still some waiting for the final. Yeah. Okay, good. So th- this is um, this is definitely on the right track. There's another one too that might come to mind. As you think about it more, um, recognize I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but John 17, 17, remember what that says? Jesus said, Your word is truth. He's praying to God and He says, Sanctify them by Your truth, God, because Your word is truth. So Jesus says that the word is true. And we could say in another on another level, the Bible says it's true. That's why we know it. Now, when we come to um, logicians, people who... Uh, reason through logic and and we're we're going to reason through logic as well but but when when that's the basis for all that they understand uh they're going to have a problem with that just like they did with the existence of god how can you say that god is real when you're already assuming what you're trying to prove it's a circular reasoning you say god told me that he exists and therefore he exists well you're you're already assuming what you're trying to prove and the same thing we would say about the bible but I would say that um, that uh, circular reasoning is not necessarily wrong, especially when it comes to um, the scriptures. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more. The problem here is uh, that Paul writes in Romans eight seven that the sinful mind is hostile to God; it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So how can we get an unbeliever to come to a position where they accept the law of God as true? and as 
binding on their souls? How can we get them to come there when they cannot submit to the law of God? They do not submit to the law of God and they are not able to do so. It's not just that they can't. It's that they don't even want to. They have no desire to. So, um, ultimately, reasoning by means of... um, by means of anything else other than what the scriptures has already said, I think is 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 uh, pointless. Uh, let, let's think about it in terms of building a house. Let's say um, we're trying to convince an unbeliever of the truth of the scripture and the truth of God and all of his and all of his uh, wisdom and so on. And we say, okay, we're we're not going to come to the a conclusion that God exists, which is the house that we're building together. We're, we're instead, we're, we're each going to put our own bricks on this house, house, and we'll see what kind of house we build. Okay, so I'll put my house, my, my brick on the house. You put your brick, and we'll see what kind of house we build. And if, it, if we come up with a house that, that has as its, um, as its view God and His Word being true, then we'll know. The problem with that is, again, back to the neutral gar- ground argument that that many um, people turn to, and that is that somehow we can have neutral ground between a believer and unbeliever. We can't have neutral ground. That is, where they are rejecting that God exists, we're saying God does exist, and, and that's where we're starting from. Instead, we can have common ground. The common ground is that we know that they know that God exists. And so, we're going to have to argue based on our presuppositions. That's the circular reasoning part. You're going to have to start there. Uh, again, we talked about this with regard to creation. I mean, who was there when it happened? Who was there when, as the, as the secularists uh, claim, evolution took place? You know, None of them were there, so they can't prove it and they can't reproduce it. So, um, they have to go on the basis of faith. Right? So, they're using circular reasoning as well. They've already determined what they want to say, what they want to believe, and they're arguing on the basis of that. We're doing the same thing, but we have a better foundation. We have Christ, uh, and we have His Word that's preserved for us. So we have to recognize, based on Romans 8, 7, that there's no such thing as a neutral argument. And so our job is to compare worldviews with our non-Christian friends um, using all of our Christian presuppositions. And what I'm going to argue today is that we should use the Scriptures to argue with unbelievers, argue, okay, discuss with unbelievers, not get in a heated debate. That's not the idea. But, but uh, discuss with unbelievers why we know what we say is true. Okay, that's what we're doing on Tuesday nights at Christianity Explored. We're, we're, um, we're arguing on the basis of Scripture. We're not saying, okay, let's lay out all of these different ideas that people have come up with over the ages. No, let's lay out what God has said and let's look at what He said because that's all that matters. Um, so, um, so I think we should bring the Bible into evangelistic conversations and show the basic consistency of the worldview. And we'll argue, uh, and, and we'll actually use some of these things that have been mentioned, that all the prophecies that have been mentioned are true, that there's no other document that's more widely supported that I think Paul was mentioning about the manuscripts. You go back to to another document from the first century or before, um, you're not going to find nearly as many. I mean, you're going to find a handful to a dozen manuscripts of that original. And 
and the fact that we have thousands, tens of thousands from the first three centuries after the Scriptures were written suggests something uh, about its validity. So we can uh, make those kind of recommendations, but ultimately we're not saying, you know, uh, this is the final foundation or this is the actual source for why we believe this. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we should use the Scriptures uh, when we talk to unbelievers. Uh, using Scripture flies in the face of po- the postmodern idea uh, that, that truth is relative and that you know, your idea of truth is, doesn't really apply to me. Uh, we don't really have any neutral ground, and yet when we appeal to a final authority, it actually flies in the face of what they're, the, the way that they're thinking. We are appealing to something that may make them cringe. That's okay, okay? because we, we know this is the absolute truth. Um, the other reason that we should argue from on the basis of scriptures because the scripture is true, right? You you could actually make logical claims that are false, but if you base what you have to say on the scriptures, you're going to be um, you can be confident that it is true. And then thirdly, scripture contains in many places its own arguments for its validity. It's not as if we're just following in blind faith but rather on the basis of ample evidence that has been secured for us. And, um, you know, as, as uh, Bill mentioned and others have, have um, agreed, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. We've seen it work in us. It's changed us. It's converted us. And so we, we can be sure that it's true. So, common objections that we get when we use the Bible, um, you, you might have come across these as well. First, the Bible is full of myths. These miracles, you know, these uh, parallel accounts of the flood and and, um, similarities with the Greek gods and so on. Okay, we've we've seen other floods that happened in in Noah and and, uh, Moses just stole that from them and made up the story that happened to take place at that time. Um, People who argue on that basis that, that the Bible is full of myths often haven't read the Scriptures for themselves. Uh, in fact, I remember a, a pastor um, preaching one time. He was a uh, agnostic, right? He didn't really care one way or the other whether God was real or not, or what what kind of religion to to follow. And then he was challenged by someone to actually read the scriptures for himself, and he was amazed at how consistent the scriptures were. He was expecting there to be all sorts of internal and inherent inconsistencies and inaccuracies and he found the scriptures to be um, very cogent and and um, unified. Secondly, the Bible conflicts with science. Have you ever heard this one before when you're talking to an unbeliever? Well, you know, based on what we we learn from science, the Bible, the, these kinds of things cannot happen as they're stated in the Bible. Um, but again, the, the, the scriptures speak on the basis of how things actually happened, on the basis of real events that took place. And ultimately, science doesn't determine whether the Bible is true. The Bible, turns, uh, the Bible determines whether or not the scientific result, the conclusion, is true. Right? If, if we have, on a scale, okay, which one should we believe when it comes to the right answer, let's say, about evolution? Okay, the science seems to point to evolution... But the Bible says evolution can't be true. So which one has more weight? Our human reasoning based on what we see in science? Or is it that we have something wrong? 
when we're coming to a conclusion that all things were made by chance. Okay, so so ultimately it depend, depends on where our authority lies, and and that's where you're going to find um, those kinds of claims when you talk to people. Thirdly, the Bible is full of contradictions. They charge that the Bible is full of car- contradictions. There are, um, certainly are some apparent contradictions. And I would say apparent because... Um, the Bible, as we'll see in just a minute, is infallible and inerrant. It is without errors and is incapable of making errors. And so um, the Bible is is uh, wholly consistent. It, it is, yes, the it is the word of 40 authors, we could say. But ultimately, it's the word of whom? It's the word of God, right? So it's God, and God is consistent. God never tells a lie. God is always truthful. He's not going to make any contradictions. That by necessity means that he cannot contradict himself. Okay. Fourthly, the Bible is historically inaccurate. Okay, again, this is similar to scientifically inaccurate. It's it's based the the response to this is um, which one do you value more? The way people understand how history actually happened, or what the Bible tells us about? What, uh, what happened in history. And what people find as there's more excavations and uh, more discoveries and more histoc- historical documents come to light, what tends to happen about these things that were once questioned about the Bible? Yeah, it's like, wow, th- those things are amazingly accurate. And that's what, um, that should not be a surprise to us. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so those are some responses that we can make to um, some of these disputes, objections to using scripture. Where did the Bible come from? Let me just briefly talk to you about um, how the canon of Scripture came to be. The word canon is a word that means rule or standard. So we have to have some kind of basis for which a book actually makes it into the the whole of Scripture. Have you ever wondered why these books were accepted as truth when Paul, we know, wrote other letters? And we know that you know if you, you uh, look in some Catholic Bible or something, Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, you have all these other books that are added to what we have here. And there's a lot of debate over whether some of these books that we have in here should have been in the canon. Should they actually be part of our Bible? Have you ever wondered why that that they uh, came to be these 66 books that we accept as authority? Well, there was actually a, a way in which these were um, accepted as truth. Um, there are four criteria criterion for canonicity, that is, that they're actually made part of the Old and the New Testament. First, um, for, for the New Testament, it's apostolic origin. That is, it had to come from one of the apostles. This was this is what Jesus, he, he had this authority, he passed it down to the apostles and said, listen, you're going to know what to say when you stand before rulers. And and Second uh, Peter 1 talks about how holy men of God were, were carried along by the Spirit being able to write write the um, the text of scripture, um, so we have 
we have apostolic origin. That means that any New Testament book has to be written by one of the apostles or a close associate of one of the apostles. Can you think of any New Testament book that was not written by an apostle? What was that? Luke? Okay, Dr. Luke. Mark, right? Mark was a close friend of Peter's and he he apparently got everything, uh, most of what he got from from Peter. Hebrews, right? Could, Could be... The Apostle Paul could be uh, the pastor at the Church of Jerusalem, which is what I take. Could be um, Apollos. Um, there's lots of arguments for that, but but uh, but basically the main the main uh, 13 of the books in the in the New Testament were written by Paul. So um, then you have others who were close to close to the apostles or close to Jesus, like Jesus' brother um, was it Jude. Yeah, half brother Jude. All right. Secondly, so apostolic origin. Secondly, universal acceptance. So it needed to be acknowledged by all major Christian communities in the ancient world. So before the fourth century, everybody agreed on what the 66 books of the New Testament or the 66 of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible were. Okay. It wasn't until the fourth century that people started to say, "Well, I wonder if this should be really a part of it." And they started to add more in, take some, try to take some out, and so on. Thirdly, uh, used in the public reading of Scripture. So one of the ways that, that historians, Christian historians, go back is they look and see what's been written, what was read in public gatherings. Okay, are they are they actually reading from, you know, First and Second Esdras or whatever, one of these books from from these extra biblical liter, literature? Um, what's that? Tobit, Hobbit, yeah, all those. Yep. Um, and then fourthly, the book itself needs to have a consistent message. What that means is it needs to be consistent with the theological message of the whole Bible. So we wouldn't we wouldn't think that, or, or it wouldn't make sense to have a book that actually opposes what Jesus had been saying while he's on the earth, or it opposes what God has been doing since the time of creation. Instead, it needs to have a consistent theological message. And that's why in the later centuries, after the early church fathers, um, people were arguing against the book of James. Okay, because James is saying that um, your faith is, uh, how do you say that? That um, we are justified by works. Okay, and it's like, well, wait a second, Paul says we're justified by faith. So how does that work? And the point is that James is making a claim there to say that, that our justification actually works, our faith works. Any, any genuine faith actually does work. His point, that, that's why he uses the kind of the, um, the example, faith without works is sin. Uh, um, faith is dead. Thank you. All right, so we, there's a lot more I could say about that. We talked about this. Uh, we, we took, I think, half a class in our systematic theology um, series, so I know it's been a couple years, but um, if you go back to some of the earlier lessons in there, then you you could uh, find out some more on that. So how do we know the Bible's truth? Several several things um, that that point to the reality that the Bible is true. First, let me give you a couple definitions here: inerrancy, uh, first infallibility. Sorry, 
Infallibility means that the Bible is incapable of making errors. This is what I was talking about before with regard to God. That if God is truth, then we would expect all His words to be truth. Otherwise, He can't be truth. Okay, God is truth. He cannot lie, as um, as uh, I think the Apostle Paul says. So, He is an incapable of making any errors, and His Word is incapable of making any errors. Now, what we're talking about is the original autograph of the Bible, which we don't have a copy of that. We don't have the original, I should say. Uh, we have copies. Um but as far as the original autographs go, they, it is incapable of making errors. Secondly, the Bible is inerrant. It, it means that the Bible contains no errors. So there's kind of a slight difference there that theologians use. The Bible contains no errors, and it's incapable of making any errors. So we can we can be confident that it is true. Right. Second Timothy three sixteen that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Um, so the, the actual text of the Scripture is what's inspired. Um, not, the, not the individuals. They're not inspired. They, they simply are born along just like prophets, in a sense, in that they're speaking the Word of God. So let's start with um, uh, why we know that the Bible is true. First, the historical reliability of the New Testament documents. Um, the New Testament record agrees perfectly with what we know of history elsewhere. The New Testament reads like a historically reliable document, and the New Testament claims witnesses of the events that it describes that were still alive when scholars knew they existed. So, uh, if you're watching this AD, the Bible continues on Sunday nights, um, you, what you're going to find is that, that in this aftermath of the death of Jesus, this is the time where these claims about who Jesus is and about the truth of what's happened is is very much brought to the light. But what's what what you're what you'll find in the New Testament record as well as on the show is that um, people are working behind the scenes to try to corrupt what actually happened, and um, and yet uh, the 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 documents of Scripture are are preserved. Now there there are. Um, tons of books that have been written to show that the Bible is internally consistent. Um, and so we could just take a comb through the entire Bible and try to figure out, okay, how, how are we going to know that each part of this is true? And we could just spend years in our whole lives, certainly, to try to, dis- try to determine if the Bible is true. But what, what would be more helpful to examine a, gr- uh, a bridge to see if it's worthy of you to cross to examine every single part of it, every single detail, every single bolt, every single board, see the, the overall engineering of it? Or would it be more helpful to talk to someone that you trust, uh, an architect, someone who knows the bridge? How about the one who actually made the bridge? Okay, And, and that's the point here. These, these things that we're talking about here with the reliability of the Scriptures, we could, uh, we could just spend hours and decades working through trying to answer whether these things are true, but ultimately we have a conversation with the author, okay, with the bridge maker, so to speak, and we can ask him if it's true, and certainly um, the answer is here. And so our confidence is not in these academic investigations, and that's why I've been pushing against more evidentialist approach to apologetics, but rather um, to try to get us to see and 
people to whom we're speaking to see that the ultimate authority comes from Jesus Christ himself. But let's just uh let's just tease some of these out for a few minutes here. First the unity of message. Unity of message. One amazing, often overlooked fact about the Bible is that it's been written over it was written over a period of fifteen hundred years by forty different authors, and yet the Bible as a whole is consistent. Now this is amazing. Just think if you started on a writing project uh, or, or let's say you continued on a writing project that started back 1,500 years ago. So we're talking in the 500s. Try to keep that consistent with what they've said along with the people, what people said in the 1,000s and the 1,500s and so on all the way down until today. Try to con- stay consistent with all of that. Okay, And that, that's, the, that's the nature of the Bible. It's been written by 1,500 over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, and yet it's wholly consistent. Secondly, as we saw earlier, the Bible is united in its teaching, uh, in teaching its own authority, despite the fact that it was written by so many authors. Um, so they're they're claiming the authority that they have to write these things on the basis of uh, God Himself. That that the Bible is authoritative. They're not claiming their own personal authority, each of these authors. Thirdly, the unity of the Bible's message is undeniable. So, have you ever heard the argument, well, the Old Testament God is a God of judgment, and the New Testament God is a God of what? What do they say? God of love, right? He doesn't do any of the judging. But have you ever thought about the cross, right? I mean, was there... Any other place where God's judgment is more clearly seen than at the cross, or you know, um, James four, 8, John eight twenty four, James four eight, where you have um, God being the the judge of all sin, and the end of Revelation where where God comes and and wipes out the earth effectively to clear it out for those who believe. Okay, God is a judge in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And to argue otherwise is is ridiculous. Okay, another case for the consistency of Scripture is that all of its point all of it points toward one clearly defined message, namely that we need Christ. The entire Bible points to one message. So here's how John Frame, a um, theologian, says it. He says an incredibly rich array of symbols, types, prophecies, events, and poetic depictions converge inevitably and powerfully on Jesus Christ who to most of the biblical writers is to come centuries later. I mean, isn't it amazing that you can see Christ in the Psalms? Right? You have these Psalms that speak of Christ and then Jesus comes along and says, hey, that's what that Scripture, that speaks of Me. That's, that's about Me. And then all of the text points to this One who is the culmination of God's... Um, uh, great power and love toward us. Uh, which number two are you talking about? Under unity of message. Uh, the Bible is united in teaching its own authority. So it argues uh, for its own authority on the basis of what God has told them. Additionally, do you have a thought? Go ahead, please do. Uh, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, where to 
day dawn and the day star rise in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Okay, good. Second Peter one, nineteen to twenty one. Yeah, that that was one I had um I'd alluded to earlier, but I didn't have the, the words thank so that was helpful. Thank you. So um so these prophets, these messengers are speaking on behalf of God as the Holy Spirit moves them along. All right, next internal consistency. So in addition to unity of message we have internal consistency. Uh this is has to do with the idea that the Bible does not and cannot contradict itself. So um, again, you're going to hear all sorts of arguments about, okay, who really parted the Red Sea? Was it God or was it the great east wind? And um, I think, I think, yeah, the answer is yes. They, they are internally consistent. You just need to, to read it and understand it from, from a, a proper perspective. Um, there, there are other arguments with regard to the chronological order of Jesus' life. If you just read through the Gospel of Matthew, then you read through the Gospel of Mark and then Luke and then John, you're going to find that these events happen at different times. But um, we have to recognize that their goal was not to write a chronological account. Okay, From here's the time from when they began all the way till the time of the end. That, that Often it has to do with the message that they're trying to portray. And so there are, there's been a lot of ink spilled on, on what is the precise um, timing for all these various events. But I'll let you study that on your own. Um, all right, several other things we could say about internal consistency, but I would just uh, argue on, on uh, based, based on the fact that God is truth and He cannot lie. He has to be um, internally consistent in what He says, and this word is from Him. Uh, thirdly, external consistency. So there are arguments for external contradictions that um, there's archaeological evidence, and I already already talked about this, so I'm not going to mention much more about this. But as as People come to find, oh, that, that's not. There wasn't really a historical Jericho or something like that. Then someone else finds, well, actually, that's not the location that you were supposed to be looking. You were supposed to be looking over here, and so now they have um, vestiges of these uh, walls that were the double-walled system that was set up on a hill, and so on. So um, eventually, what happens, like with the Dead Sea Scrolls, it answers all sorts of questions that. As as people discover these, I think that was in the 1960s, amazingly, uh, it, it showed that these writings from Isaiah and other places were actually legitimate and that there was a whole community that had preserved these kinds of writings and actually a lot of, um, I, I think, probably uh, further supported what we already knew. Okay. Um, Let's let's turn to Jesus' validation of the Old and New Testament, and we'll finish here. Um, because again, we can talk about canonicity and how the early church fathers were responsible, even though they weren't inspired or um, you know magically moved to determine which books. The best way to to determine that though is from Jesus. And so, as we examine his teaching, we find that Jesus actually treated the Old Testament as God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. In fact. Where you're going to find, or I should say, most generally, what you're going to find is that uh, 
there is not a whole lot of argument over the Old Testament books, which ones of them are legitimate, which ones of them should be a part of the canon. Uh, it's more a question of the New Testament because, um, as you can imagine, uh, they were all written after Jesus died, right? So if they're all written after the time that Jesus died, then how can He give authority to them? But let's just think about the Old Testament first. Someone turn to John 10.34. Read that for us. Because here Jesus claims that the entire Old Testament is trustworthy. Other places He, he argues for the the law, that's Moses' five books, the prophets, that's the prophets, and then the writings, which includes the poetic books and the historical documents. And he, he says, you need to accept all of them. So, what's John 10.34 say? Okay. Is that, I was looking for the one where he says, oh, read the next verse too for me. And then he goes on to say, Do you say of him, you know, whom the Father sanctified and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. So um, he's saying, Listen, the, the scriptures have already spoken about the reality. And here's the little parenthetical phrase that's almost we can pass over, verse 35. The scriptures cannot be broken. So what he's talking about there is not books 1 to 66, Genesis to Revelation. What he's talking about is books 1 to 39. Genesis to Malachi. He's saying, these scriptures which have already spoken about me are true. Uh, Many times further with regard to the Old Testament, we see Jesus end his arguments by quoting scripture. Um, For example, in Matthew 22, um, he clearly understands that, that these words are authoritative. He speaks on behalf of the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew, one of his purposes of writing his gospel is to show that the the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus. And so you'll, what you'll find is as you read through Matthew, he's constantly saying, so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, Judas betrayed Jesus. Or so that the Scriptures would be fulfilled, you know, he was born in Bethlehem or something like that. And so um, Jesus does the same sort of thing when he speaks. He speaks as authoritative on behalf of the Old Testament. Jesus clearly assumes that what's prophesied in the Old Testament must be fulfilled, that it has to be, um, that it has to point to Him. John 5:39. In fact, let's turn there. Many of you are already in John. John 5:39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these Scriptures that testify about Me. They point to Me. And and Jesus on the road to Emmaus says. You know, he he explained to them all that the scriptures had to say about him. These guys who are kind of confused about this whole thing that Jesus died, he was supposed to be the Messiah and he's gone. I mean, how how's that supposed to work? And Jesus said, "Let me show you that the that the savior had to suffer." And I I imagine they probably took him to Isaiah 53 and other places. Finally, in Matthew 19, Jesus establishes a pattern. Let's turn there. It's repeated in the rest of the gospels. And a pattern that uh, we find in the Old Testament as well, but basically there's a there's a um, replace replacement sort of idea that that as the scriptures say, God says, and so we know that that God is actually 
the author of that. Matthew 19, verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, and then here's the quotation from Scripture, made them male and female, and said, For uh, this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and so on. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever therefore, he doesn't say, whatever therefore the Scriptures have told us to join together, let no man separate. He says, whatever God has joined together. So there's this um, interplay between the Scripture says, interchange uh, between the Scripture says and God says, and you're going to find that uh, in other places throughout the New Testament as well. So, if Jesus is the Son of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, by His resurrection from the dead, then we ought to treat the Old Testament as Jesus did, which is the authoritative Word of God. What about the New Testament? Um, We've got two-thirds of the Bible covered if we accept the Old Testament as true, but we have another third left, the New Testament. Um, We need to understand how we should view that, especially since it was written after, all of it was written after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended. And what you'll find as you read through the Gospel is that Jesus starts to lay a foundation for the New Testament and it being accepted as truth. John 7:16, he says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from Him who sent me. In Matthew 24, Mark uh, 13, Luke 21, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. Um, so, Jesus gives us reason to believe in the truth of His own words, but also in the words of His disciples. Uh, Turn over to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And this is actually a parallel passage of what we've looked at in Luke's Gospel, but we're in Matthew, so we'll just look at it here. Verse 19, He says to them, But when they hand you over. Do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it's not you who speak, but it's the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. So here Jesus is telling them what's going to happen during times of persecution, how you're going to be able to respond. This is not a promise for us. I mentioned we're going through Luke's Gospel. He's not saying when you stand before people, you're going to know what to say. Um, uh, He's saying uh, this to to, to the disciples. So, the idea here is that Jesus is is lending some authority to the disciples and what they have to say as they are uh, really part of the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone, but they're the foundation of the church. And if, if their word's going to be accepted and validated, then they're, they're going to need to be able to know what to say and, by extension, I think, what to write. Jesus told them in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance all that He had taught them. After the resurrection, Jesus declared that His disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, Acts 1.8. And um, then when the disciples are there on the scene, Jesus is off the scene, He's ascended to heaven, um, they recognize their own authority. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 36-38. This is Paul speaking. He said, Did the Word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge 
that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So you, you think you you have apostolic authority? You don't. Okay, but but what I have to say to you is on the basis of what the Lord has commanded. This is uh, he recognized his own apostolic authority. So these guys are not kind of confused. Well, we don't really know if this is from God, or we don't know uh, how this affects anything that's going to happen now or in the future. They recognized their own authority that Jesus had given to them. And when you move past that, uh, after these books had been written, the church accepts their apostolic authority. Um, they uh, up through again. I, I was mentioned through the fourth century is starting to be questioned, but really the first two hundred years specifically, there was no question as to who the apostles were and what their which writings were of um, biblical authority. And so Jesus, I think, attests to and sends on his disciples after the fact to have the authority to be able to write the scriptures. And uh, so, for all those reasons, we would say that that our initial presupposition is true. Our initial presupposition is the Bible is true because God said it's true. Okay, that's our basis. But when we come to uh, have to dig down a little bit, th- those are some of the answers for why we we uh, th- that main claim is supported. All right, any questions? I had a lot of, a lot to go through there, so I I rushed through there quickly. On the back of your handout is uh, from B.B. Warfield. Uh, he was president of Harvard University Divinity School, really, uh, when it was theological and godly. And um, he wrote a book called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible and talks about several of these things and, and gives text for what I've been, been talking to you about. All right? Yes, yeah, and there there are many um, who are godly men and women over the centuries. I would say probably the last three or four centuries, because covenant theology hasn't been around that long. But but who who adopt that sort of idea that that the church is Israel, and yet are mistaken in others. But um, you know, um, unfortunately, we can't be completely consistent in all that we believe. We can't. We can uh, be completely perfect in in our understanding of the scriptures. Certainly, we have weaknesses as well. Um, we just try our best to to know what the scripture said and to to affirm it and to teach it and to live it. So, um, not to excuse Warfield and others who who take that covenant theology approach, but but again, I I don't think it's condemning, as I've mentioned before in our study of dispensationalism. All right, let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, the consistency and the truth of your word. We're thankful that we don't have to go to your word and question it. Any other book we read or any other person that we listen to, um, we have to we have to uh, judge them uh, on the basis of what your word says. But when we come to your word, we don't have to guess whether or not what we're reading is true. We don't have to test it against any other thing. Uh, we we know that it's true because uh, we have seen it change our lives. We have heard your word from uh, you directly, uh, and we 
know because the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit. And so we're thankful for that. And we're thankful for the, the uh, comfort that it is to, to come to it and know that, that we are hearing truth. Lord, we, we um, live in a world that, that likes to, um, to spin different ideas and try to make them sound good. And so it's really comforting to know that, that you're not spinning anything. You tell us exactly what we need to know. And we pray that you'd help us to accept your word as truth and to remove any hostilities that we naturally have toward it by illumining us with the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.